signature event at the University of Southern California. Please take this moment to turn off or silence your cell phones. Please welcome the Senior Vice President for Academic Affairs and Provost of the University of Southern California, Michael Quick. Wow, thank you for applauding a provost. That was very nice. Um, and how, how, what'd you think of my opening acts? Um, uh, they were the LA Opera's uh, Domingo Colburn Stein Young Artists, and they were absolutely phenomenal. And please, one more round of applause for them. Just. I know you're back there. I hope you can hear me. You guys were just absolutely amazing. Um, great to have you here tonight. Wow, big crowd. Good to, good to see such a terrific turnout to Visions and Voices. You know, this has been our decade-long um, effort to bring the arts and the humanities to our community, to our academic community, to our local community, um, to say that, you know, the arts and the humanities are, are really going to tell us who we are, and what we can be as we move forward, whether we're engineers or hopefully most of us neuroscientists. Um, where we go is gonna be dependent on how we see the world, how we see each other, how we see ourselves, and that's what the arts and the humanities do for us. And, and for the last decade, hundreds of thousands of people have enjoyed uh, great events, uh, and uh, we have a tremendous one for you uh, this evening, and so thank you so much for coming. Um, I became provost uh, a couple of years ago, and I've been preaching uh, and, and driving everyone crazy at the university around this idea that at a place like USC, uh, where we have everything from six conservatory quality arts schools through um, the humanities and the social sciences and the natural sciences and engineering and medicine, um, we need to tackle the big hard problems of the day, the wicked problems. And so uh, let's be the university that takes our army of 45,000 students and 7,000 faculty and 20,000 staff and think hard about how do we change and invent the future of the 21st century? Let's be the great partner to the city and the county and the state and the nation and the world about how we change, uh, uh, tackle these big, hard problems. Homelessness, um, uh, immigration, uh, let's be the place that figures these things out. And one of the ones that I'm very interested in and that we've launched recently is around this idea that, that we have to do a better job in figuring out health and wellness. You know, we've, we've been a, a, a nation focused on illness and, and we can't afford that anymore and it's not the right perspective. We need to think about wellness. We need to think about wellness from, from K through gray, as we say in the education business, from very early on uh, through aging. And, and, and so what does that look like? It isn't just about what doctors do, it's what all of us do around education, uh, around health, uh, certainly, but it's also about the arts and the humanities. How can we bring them to bear to make people healthier and well? And so it's such a great honor tonight um, to have uh, the panelists that we have tonight to lead that discussion with you. Um, 
I've already filibustered way too long because what an amazing uh, trio uh, we have for you this evening. Uh, first, we have easily one of the great uh, uh, singers of any genre of our time here this evening, uh, the amazing Renee Fleming. Um, Where do you even begin, right? Um, uh, she was given, uh, she was awarded the National Medal of Arts by President Obama a few years ago. She's won Grammys. She sung at the Super Bowl. Um, she um, uh, played a big role in the Lord of the Rings series. Um, she's, uh, yeah, we get a shout out for the Lord of the Rings, but not for the National Medal, okay. Um, <laughs> But what I really love, uh, not only I got the chance to see her in Rosen Cavalier uh, last year in, in New York, but beyond that, uh, what I really love about Renee is uh, her amazing ability um, uh, to think hard and to, and to bring to bear music uh, across genres uh, to people who may not have thought about music uh, in, in any way in their lives. Joining her on the stage uh, is a colleague here at USC, uh, somebody I consider a, a, a terrific friend, I don't know how he feels about me, um, and that is Professor Antonio Damasio. Um, for those of us, and I am a neuroscientist, for those of us in the neuroscience community, Antonio holds a special regard. Um, uh, you know, so many of us get locked into our, our sort of narrow uh, area of study, and Antonio is one of those people who thinks broadly about the brain, about, um, about human, uh, humanity, um, how that all comes together. And uh, I like to uh, tell people that, that you know, uh, Descartes made a horrible error uh, a number of centuries ago, sort of separating uh, the mind from the brain and the body. Um, and Antonio Damasio is the anti-Descartes in bringing those things back together again. And it's a remarkable achievement. He's been cited and won so many awards. Uh, we'd be up here quite a long time for me to talk about it. I'll just cite one. There's actually a high school in Portugal named after him. And once you've achieved that, you are really uh, 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 among the best of the best. Uh, he has a new book out. I'm so looking forward to, to uh, reading it. Uh, I was looking at it backstage. I said, oh, is that my copy? He said, no, that's Renee's copy. Uh, but I hope to get a copy uh, uh, soon. It's called The Strange Order of Things. Um, and again, is aimed at thinking hard about what feelings are and how bodies, brains, create mind. And so uh, be looking forward uh, uh, to reading that, and I hope you do as well. And in conversation with Renee and Antonio is Christopher Kulsch. He is the CEO and president of LA Opera, which he has uh, done for the last uh, a half decade or so. Um, he has really led the LA Opera in new, interesting, creative ways. Um, and, uh, you know, there's 
there's so many great institutions in Los Angeles, but the LA Opera is certainly one of those that we need to be proud of as, as, as members of this community. Um, they do amazing work uh, throughout the community. Uh, it's not just about opera, it's what music can bring to the city. And so without further ado, it is my great pleasure to bring up here to these wonderful chairs, our guests for the, the evening, Renee Fleming, Antonio Damasio, and Christopher Kolsch. Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I want to thank the provost. I want to thank uh, Daria Yudakovsky and Visions and Voices and the entire USC community for hosting us um, in this wonderful conversation um, this evening. Um, e each of us in this room has experienced music's profound ability to shape our mood, to change our emotions, to inspire a wellspring of memories. And as you experienced, I'm sure, over the last 15 minutes, um, to unite us in our common humanity. Um, so it's a real pleasure uh, to join um, in a conversation about the science behind those emotions um, with my fellow uh, distinguished guests this evening. Um, it seems to me, uh, a layman, a civilian, that science has only recently turned uh, their attention to understanding the connections between the heart, the emotion, and the mind. And so uh, that's what we're gonna turn our attention to um, this evening, is just scratching the surface of that conversation. So I wanna start um, with you, Dr. Damasio, um, with the question of why, why um, are you attracted to art, to culture, as a scientist? Well, first of all, great pleasure to be here. Um, it's very simple. I think that there was no time in my life when I was not. Uh, and uh, I was just telling Brene that I was brought up in a steady diet of music, actually uh, mostly opera, when I was a kid. And I was just telling Brene that I remember distinctly the first opera that I attended in Lisbon at a great theater, Teatro São Carlos, uh, and it was Barber of Seville. And I was seven and I hated it. <laughs> but, um, that's probably one reason why I ended up liking Wagner so much. Yeah, I went the, the other way. Um, but at any rate, there, 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 was, uh, the, 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 there was in my life from very early on an interest in music of very different kinds, including pop and jazz. Uh, and there was an interest in literature and in movies. And in fact, I thought at a certain point that I was going to be either a, a novelist or, or a a movie maker, uh, and, uh, and, and I was a photographer as well. So I think that interest in the arts was there from very early on and was part, was part of my culture. But what really was interesting is that I discovered there was not the arts that I was primarily interested in, but what was behind the arts, specifically the human mind. That's what really interested me. And it was only when I was an adolescent that I realized that there was one way of studying it, and that way was through the study of either philosophy 
or psychology, and I had the good luck of having a, a person in, in the, uh, the lycée that uh, led me in the direction of medicine, which I never thought would be the approach. And the approach at that time was going into neurology. And, and, and so it was always there, it never left me, and so it's not that I developed an interest in the arts after I was a neurologist and neuroscientist. I think I became a neurologist and neuroscientist because of that. And curiously, uh, Hannah, my wife, had a very similar kind of interest. She was very talented, actually. She became a great neuroanatomist, but before that she was, she was, she was a great visual artist, and she was actually a terrific sculptor. And she was also very interested in music. So this is quite natural. And what is interesting is that after many years of life as a scientist, uh, as scientists, uh, we decided to create a Brain and Creativity Institute. Because what we wanted was to bring what we knew and what we had developed in terms of the science of emotion and feeling and consciousness and language, to bring it to bear on the arts. Uh, and very specifically, as we developed the program here at USC, it came to be music first, uh, and literature and cinema very close, um, and uh, quite interestingly, now that is, uh, and also from the start, a great interest in education, because what is quite clear is that you cannot have uh, people interested in the arts uh, and interested in science if you don't educate people about the, 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 the love of those disciplines and what can be achieved uh, through them. So the interest in the education and the arts was very, very early on in the Institute and now we're about 12 years into this saga and we have quite a lot of developments in that area. But the idea of bridging it all the time and having both the arts in different manifestations uh, and the sciences together has been there. And thankfully, because the, one of the main forces behind the, the arts and one of the main languages is really the language of emotion and feeling, that is actually very easy to do. You don't need to stretch it. We don't need to, to force it in any way. It's, it's quite, uh, quite automatic. And for me, I would, of course, invert the question, which is how does an, an artist of such uh, profundity become interested in the harder uh, aspect of this, the, the scientific aspect of, of music? Well, I talk a little bit about that in, in just a moment, but another thing that really brought me to this was uh, the pressure of performing was so almost traumatic for me as a very shy child that I developed all of these bizarre little trade-offs. And one of them was somatic pain. I had to actually be in pain in order to succeed. So I had these little kind of psychological trade-offs. And so all of that really got me interested in the brain and how, how the mind works and also the mind-body connection, which for most of my career was not accepted at all by medicine and now seems to be finally um, being understood a little bit more. Great. So, so just to uh, give you a little bit of a sense of the structure of the evening, uh, I'm going to ask uh, Renee to present her work uh, in this field, and we'll have some musical interludes, and then Dr. Damasio will present his work. Uh, we'll have some time for some uh, questions uh, between the three of us, and then we'll have a brief moment at the end for some questions from the audience. Um, so Renee, would you like to present um, your work? Thank you. Hi, everybody. 
So it's such a pleasure to be hosted by USC Visions and Voices this evening, and I want to thank uh, Christopher, obviously, and Antonio. I won't call you Dr. Damasio, I'll call you Antonio. Uh, as well as um, Dr. Asal Habibi. Uh, and, and isn't it wonderful to also have the LA Opera Young Artists performing tonight? You know, it's, it's, I know. It strikes me, it strikes me also, what am I holding this mic for? I have a mic right here. <laughs> See, you can tell I'm not used to using a microphone. <clears throat> Um, it strikes me that each human voice is different, and that's something to really be uh, celebrated. Um, but I want to start with by sharing why I'm, what, really why I'm fascinated by this intersection of music health uh, and neuroscience and how the Sound Health Initiative came about. So this particular presentation is part of one I've created to amplify the field for my own audience. Um, I travel about the country, 25 concerts, and I love to present this uh, to interested people. Uh, and so, but any questions about the ventral striatum have to go to, to Antonio afterwards. Um, so first, are there any singers in the audience? Raise your hands. Wow, yeah, I heard that. Any musician, any kind of instrumentalists, you know, sousaphone players, that kind of thing? Uh, so anybody play music in the car, um, go to concerts, go, yeah, I, I thought so. So, you know, we, a lot of us think of music as entertainment, but it's, it's a central part of all of our lives, and is, I, I, isn't it worth understanding how it affects us and why? So obviously I think so, but I'm biased. Uh, music is my passion. Although I have to tell you, singing is one of the really strange things that human beings do. So in classical music, we've spent centuries bringing it to a virtuosic high. Um, and unlike an instrument, you can't pluck a string or, or hit a key to reach that high B flat. It's the wrestling of involuntary muscles that gives us that. Uh, and it's also the fact, again, that we're unamplified and we use a lot of imagery when we learn. So I learned to sing with people saying things like, smell a rose, mm. right? And does anybody remember that? So given that challenge, I just realized that singing is not just physical, but completely mental. And many people use it to serenade, relax, worship, commemorate special events like inaugurations. I've also been touched by so many people who've told me that my music has brought them comfort in a time of stress, dealing with grief or illness. And there's a lot to be learned about how music engages and even alters the brain and affects our emotions. So in recent years, I noticed there was a lot in the newspaper about this. And I thought, you know, why are scientists studying music? Don't they have better things to do? like cure cancer. And two years ago, I met the perfect person to answer that question. So Dr. Francis Collins, I met him, the director of the National Institutes of Health, the largest supporter of biomedical research in the world at a dinner party. Our fellow guests included Justices Scalia, Kennedy, and Ginsburg, who, and they had just come off the bench after deciding marriage equality. Let me tell you, I had Ginsburg and Scalia on either side, and they were not making eye contact. Uh, it was, but they, you know, to their credit, they all came. Um, and Francis conveniently brought his guitar, as all heads of major world institutions do, right? Uh, 
And we staged an impromptu sing-along, everybody relaxed, let go of the stress, and eventually he even suggested that we could tour as the Supremes. <laughs> so I, I asked Francis if he'd be interested in collaborating with the Kennedy Center, where I'm artistic advisor at large. The NIH wants to understand the brain, the most complex structure known to man, and to understand even a fraction of how it works, they want to study music. So he said yes. Um, to begin the initiative last January, the NIH gathered leaders in the field to look at the current state of neuroscience and therapies and what the potential is. And then the Kennedy Center, Deborah Rutter, um, who's the head of the Kennedy Center, also the NEA is participating, launched the partnership with a two-day festival of events blending musical performance with science. So here is a snippet of Dr. Collins' debut with me and the National Symphony Orchestra. I think the success of any practice, uh, particularly an aesthetic practice, starts at the top. And in my practice, it starts with me. The culture that I set with, with the office, with my staff, and with my patient partners has to trickle down. So how do we know that music is more than just entertainment? It starts with research, and I have learned that research is really granular. I, I think of it as tiny building blocks that make up a mosaic of understanding. In fact, every human civilization has had music. We're hardwired for it. And music may have predated speech, and so many scientists believe that it played an important role in human evolution. The oldest musical artifact that shows us is, was recently found in 2008 in a cave in Germany. It's the bone flute. And interesting to me, and it was from 40,000 years ago, the human voice may have gained its full vocal potential 530,000 years ago. So even Neanderthals had the potential to sing. Some of them may have been my colleagues. Um, so, just kidding. I'm just, I'm dating myself now. So, now why did music develop? And some scientists think it may have helped us to adapt, and for a few reasons. Firstly, it's known as the universal language. It enhances our sense of community and evolutionarily, it could have influenced social cohesion. The composer, Handel, whose music I'm singing tomorrow night, how many of you are coming to my concert? I love it, thank you, said music is not a function of entertainment, but of making better citizens. And researchers have found that music impacts brain circuits involved in empathy and trust, helping people to bond. So Darwin thought music may have played a role in seduction. So just like the peacock shows off his tail, music as a marker of creativity may indicate biological fitness. And here Mick Jagger is going for both. <laughs> Feathers and talent. So. There's also evidence of music existing in other species. Birds, like us, are vocal learners, which means that hearing and movement centers in the brain are connected. This is Snowball the Cockatoo, who was studied by Ani Patel and his colleagues. Okay. Ready? Dr. Smith, how do you start a conversation about skincare with your patients? Starting the conversation. <laughs> I love that, I know. So entrainment is the ability to synchronize with an external beat. Scientists believe we may have developed it because it promotes our impulse to help one another. So scientist Laurel Trainer conducted a really interesting experiment about this recently. 
the experimenter stands across from the infant and music plays over the loudspeakers. The assistant bounces the infant to the beat of the song and the experimenter facing the infant also bounces, either in synchrony with how the baby is bounced or out of synchrony, for example, at a faster or slower tempo. Subsequently, we measured the infant's helpfulness towards the experimenter. To do this, the experimenter would try to complete a goal, like drawing pictures with markers, putting balls in a bucket, or pinning dishcloths up on a clothesline. In each trial, the experimenter would accidentally drop the object she needed to complete the task, and the infant was given 30 seconds to respond. We found that infants who had been bounced in synchrony with the experimenter were significantly more likely to assist with the dropped items and to help early in the trials, compared to infants who had been bounced out of synchrony with that person's movements. So how does music affect us? Well, if music gives you the chills, it means the brain is releasing dopamine. Music taps into the brain's pleasure centers in a similar way to essential needs like chocolate. And Emotion enhances memory and music strengthens this connection. Interestingly, music memory is often the last thing to go in adults with dementia and Alzheimer's disease, and it's especially power with music that is emotionally significant. I had the privilege of visiting Alzheimer's Greater LA this morning and watching music therapists work together with incredible LA opera artists. So we all know playlists are king for energy, or even to put us to sleep. In fact, a record executive told me that sleep is the number one playlist on Spotify. Good thing I had all this education, right? All of you, yeah. And it looks like music can also relax us in a public setting like, say, the Metropolitan Opera. <laughs> yes. This was during one of my performances of De Rose and Cavalier last season. Al Roker fell asleep and Instagrammed it. So I just want to point out, I was not on stage at that time. Al and I share an alma mater and I was very touched he came. He gets up at 3 a.m. Uh, so back to science. We wondered what happens in a singer's brain during a performance. And to find out, I volunteered. My interest in creating this project, bringing together the Kennedy Center and the National Institutes of Health, was in amplifying the breadth of the work in research, in childhood development, certainly in therapies. I noticed research coming out about the fact that music has been discovered to be in a lot of parts of the brain, and therefore it engages so much of us. I felt instinctively that not enough people knew about this work, and I also felt that it helps music and the arts maintain a place in society that they really should have. So, what was it like for you in that brain scanner? Well, you know, it's an incredible challenge because you're not supposed to move, and it was two hours. I was in the machine for two hours. I offered myself as a guinea pig in this uh, fMRI experiment on music, and the test was devised to try and understand how music affects the brain in different ways. So they had me singing, imagining singing, and speaking. I chose something that I thought I could sing 13 times comfortably, and I also chose something that I thought I could have an emotional connection to in an MRI. 
think we're ready to get you set up in the scanner. Great. Ready to go? Yeah. All right, let's do it. We're going to start our first scan. I cannot cross exciting time in neuroscience where we're beginning to understand how the brain interacts with the environment and music is a really important part of the environment and we're starting to learn ways in which music can influence all kinds of other aspects of one's brain function and especially how we could use that information to use music therapeutically and even more. what does the brain look like when somebody is speaking okay there's certain parts that are lit up what does it look like if they're performing music? Other parts lit up, you're using more of your brain. If we could learn from that about how to fully empower people to use that creative talent that we're all born with, but oftentimes gets kind of pushed to the side by daily activities, I think that would be pretty amazing. And maybe this project can help with that. So I was in the machine for literally two hours. We're not going to win a Grammy for this recording, I don't think. And um, Dave is not 12 years old, as he looks. So we know that music is a CrossFit workout for the brain. The areas that are engaged in singing are used for language, emotion, memory, motor function, hearing, motivation, and reward. This is why I'm so tired after a performance. So I was in the machine. They had me speaking, then singing, and then imagining. So singing engaged more of my brain than speaking, but imagining was the most powerful. And this could be because I sing all the time, so it's second nature. And while imagining, I had to focus harder to tune out the sound of the machine and work to keep these repetitions going. Uh, now, Drs. Damasio and Habibi have studied the effect of music training in childhood and will share these exciting findings with you, so I'm skipping that part. But therapy, the idea of music's power to heal isn't new. So Plato thought of music as medicine for the soul. After World Wars I and II, musicians helped bring comfort to veterans living with the trauma, emotional and physical, of war. And music therapy became established. Now there are over 7,000 board-certified music therapists working in hospitals, schools, correctional facilities. And we have two with us tonight. Ronald and Helen, where are you? Can you raise your hands? Okay, oh, right there. So, hi. If you have questions about music therapy, they're here. So, it enhances a patient's quality of care, boosting the immune system, speeding up recovery, and it creates a sense of normalcy and control in what is otherwise a very stressful environment. So, a teen with cancer in Indianapolis might work with Dr. Sherry Robb to write and record a pop song expressing a range of emotions and find hope. And researcher Yoga Brat found that music listening can reduce pain. So at a time when our country is experiencing an incredible opioid epidemic, isn't that worth exploring? So I, I'd like to share just one example with you today. Forest 
worked closely with this unbelievably creative young music therapist, Tom Schweitzer, after a traumatic brain injury. He was a great snowboarder. He got a little careless and wasn't wearing his helmet, which he should have been. His injury was catastrophic, and they told us they didn't expect him to wake up. They were saying he may be so brain traumatized that he'll never speak again. Your voice is still there. You just have to find it. I was desperate to find some way to keep him connected, and that's when I called Tom. The first sign that we saw that music was affecting Forrest was just a little tiny move of the finger, like he was keeping rhythm. He was definitely connecting to music. It was right after Thanksgiving. So this was at the point that Forrest was able with one, maybe two fingers, to spell a little phrase out to you. And he wrote on his screen with his one finger, Help me find my voice. Yes. It was melodic intonation and, and making sounds and hugging him and getting him to grunt that the first two words came out. Sung. They came out musically. I'm a believer in the scientific method, and uh, I'm not a fan of anecdotal stories. This was one where he had been subjected to a large amount of standard therapies, and music therapy is what changed the game. There is no doubt about that. can speak because of music and the modulation of pitches. Mm -hmm. That's what gave me my tone of voice back. How long did it take? A while. Uh -huh. I mean, it's been, I hit my head in 2011, so it's been six years. Wow. It's, you have made an unbelievable recovery. Unforgettable. That's what you are. I know. <laughs> so this film um, hasn't really been released yet, and we are so fortunate because the filmmaker, Susan Koch, is here tonight. Susan, where are you? Just shout. There she is. Okay. So thank you. It's very inspiring. You'll be able to see it sometime this year, I hope. So this is retraining the brain to use a different neural pathway for speech through singing. It helps stroke patients as well. And I'm personally happy to learn that this plasticity continues now throughout the lifespan. So this old dog is gonna learn new tricks. So finally, we listen to music passively and mostly in the background. When I was in Penn Station recently, I was so excited. I listened, I said, is that Schubert? Is that a Haydn quartet? What is that? I hear, I hear chamber music. Oh my gosh, this is so civilized, so wonderful. And then I learned that it was there to, to deter loiterers. <laughs> I said, great, okay, I, all right, I'm in a niche. Uh, but music 
does offer a powerful source of community. Former Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy said loneliness is a serious epidemic in our country. But when he asked a group of people if they saw emotion as a source of weakness or strength, astoundingly, they said weakness. But according to the American Psychological Association, loneliness and social isolation represent a greater public health hazard than obesity. And research shows it contributes to inflammation, dementia, and heart disease. We see the arts revitalizing urban centers around the country in small towns, cities. My own personal hope is that in, in an increasingly divided America, this trend will grow, create social connectedness and civility. And those of you who are students in the arts, please think about this. I'll leave you with my very favorite example of bonding. Hi, girls. It's August 6th. Is that right? Yeah. August 6th, 2012. Daddy's going to play them a little song while they're you eating their peas. Ready? You guys ready? Thank you so much, Renee. Uh, Dr. Damasio, would you like to introduce our first uh, musical interlude and explain to us what we'll be watching while we'll be hearing it? And at this point, I'd like to welcome back uh, LA Opera's own uh, pianist, Nino Sanakitze, to the stage.
So there are several reasons why we wanted to show you this, this film. And the first one is that what you saw is a pretty good representation of the incredibly rich activity that is going on in the brain. And the fact that it is not going on in one area only or two or three. You see, we can take the same data and filter it out and go to only certain areas of interest and focus, for example, on areas that we have known for a long time are dedicated to language processing or to music processing and study the activity only in those areas. But here we wanted to do exactly the opposite, is to take away this vision that sometimes one has of the brain, a phrenological vision really, that there is one area X or Y that does a particular job and the rest of the brain is quiet as if it were a computer and you were just moving certain parts but the rest is not responding. So everything is responding. And exactly the things that you have just heard from Rene, the fact that there is this enormous response that in good part has to do with this search for meanings around uh, emotions and feelings, all of this means that there is a huge recruitment of many areas of the brain that are dealing, for example, with memory and bringing up certain memories that are relatively related to certain passages of music. Whether you know the music from before, which is the case of many of us in this room, this is a very standard uh, Chopin piece, but it could be music that you've never heard before. And it's still, because of its association with other um, pieces of music, it's going to allow you to remember certain things which are related to your unique experience and which may or may not be the same as the person sitting next to you. So it's this richness that I want you to concentrate on and to imagine that this is really, it's, it's really a beautiful fluctuating activity. Sometimes it increases. Of course, if you know about brain function, you realize that there were at several moments uh, parts of the, the brain that were very active in precisely the regions of the temporal lobe that are very, very involved in music processing because they are the receiving ends of auditory information. But there were, there's a, a beautiful passage there where clearly the person who was in the scanner was remembering something and probably also actively making memories. And there's the whole region of the perihippocampus and in particular a region that we know called the entorhinal cortex that was especially active. By the way, that's exactly the region that is primarily affected in Alzheimer's disease. So when you start developing Alzheimer's disease, there are a number of very important cells in that region that start dying away. And it is because of that that becomes more and more difficult to learn new material and to remember old material, especially if it's relatively recent. The older one is a little bit more robust. The other thing that I wanted to tell you is that this picture of the brain is highly selective. We were showing you only the cerebral cortex. Uh, now, the brain is much more than the cerebral cortex. The brain has, for example, all the nuclei that are at the base, things such as the amygdala, which you probably have heard about because it has so much to do with fear processing. And of course, music can easily produce, if 
you've got the right composer, produce fear, produce a state of anxiety, and so th that kind of thing is not being represented in that image. And then there's this whole collection of structures in the brain stem, which is literally in between the cerebral cortex and the spinal cord. But this in-between structure, which we share with many of the species before us, is in fact the housing machinery for the processes of emotion. So if you're going to trigger a reaction of anger or a reaction of joy, the fundamental filter to produce that reaction is situated in the brainstem, not at all in the cerebral cortex. So there's all of that old machinery is there to trigger good and bad emotions and to come to produce feelings, the feelings of fear or joy or, or sadness, which are in fact depend very much on the cerebral cortex, but the trigger for it does not. And for example, when you are going through the feelings of your own body, the feelings of the state of your health, and when you report having well-being or a state of malaise and feeling like you're coming down with something, that requires yet another big part of the nervous system, which is located in the spinal cord and in many, many ganglia that, that have their tentacles, so to speak, all the way down to the periphery of the body. And something that is very important for you to know, since we're talking about the brain and music, but we're talking about more broadly uh, emotions and feelings, is that none of this is being done by the brain alone. It is extremely important for us to change the traditional paradigm, which is something you're going to see happening in the next few years, is that minds are not made by brains alone. Minds are made by a cooperation between the nervous system and the body. The body has enormous wisdom, has enormously uh, beautiful things that it can do on its own. And there are parts of the brain that are registering what is going on in the body, but above all, interacting with the body to produce what we call the mind, whether it is the most subtle and uh, exuberant uh, emotion, or uh, a state of sadness, or a state of transcendence in terms of the, the analysis that you're making of the state of life, or the state of your life, or the life of uh, the life of others. So, um, before we tell you about a study that we are especially proud of, um, I would just like to say a few words uh, in keeping with what uh, beautiful presentation that you heard from Rene about what really is music, what is music for, and where does music come from. Um, Rene actually told you quite a lot about what music is for. And music is, in fact, something that can be a part of our lives, and not just our lives here, but the lives of people anywhere in any culture across the world. And it is a testimony to the universality of the power of music that it is in fact with very different types of music in very different societies, poor and rich, but it is universal, it's across the world. 
it can have different notations, there are different ways of approach, there are different scales, uh, there are different ways of treating the sound and sometimes different instruments. And yet it is music, and it is music because it has a number of fundamental aspects. There are tones with pitches, there's their rhythm, uh, there can be tempo, there, there are um, certain aspects of timbre that allow that allow the sound of an instrument, including the human voice, to be, to be distinguished and to be separated from others. All those characteristics are manipulated, uh, but yet there's that universality. Now, make no mistake, that universality comes from the effect that music has. If music did not have this universal way of entering emotivity and producing emotions that then become our feelings, it would not be universal because it is different enough in different places that it would not have that grasp. That grasp comes from this shared language of emotion and feeling. And that's why it can be so powerful and why it can be uh, remarkable to treat people, to deal with uh, a variety of conditions, including uh, before any including their own mental conditions, their own happiness or sadness, uh, and so forth. So, uh, can we have a definition of music? I want to tell you about two definitions, and one is mine, uh, but it, it would be uh, shared and accepted by many other people. And the other is a definition of Buzzoni, and this is a definition that my friend Daniel Barenboim always likes to talk about. Whenever they ask him, what is music, he says, sonorous air. And it's really, if you think about it, it's quite apt because it's, it's about the way in which music is produced. Music, whether it is through the human voice or an, an instrument, it ends up being air that sounds in a certain way because it produces a set of vibrations and that is what ends up being picked up by our tympanic membranes and allow all of the chain of neural processes that comes forth. But so one that I would prefer um, is the following. Articulated sequences of sounds which produce meanings mostly by causing emotions and feelings. And I prefer it because it's, it's, uh, uh, it, it brings on several aspects. The fact that there's an articulation of the sounds, it's not one sound, and that the fact that it produces meanings, but that those meanings come via emotions and feelings. Because unless you're dealing, for example, with opera and, or leader, in which we have music together with language, uh, most music happens not to have language attached to it, and most music happens to produce meanings precisely because of the language of emotion and feeling. When you have a song, it's different. You have the meanings of the, the music and the meanings that the composer, the, 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 the person who wrote the libretto can attach to it. Um, and music does all this through instruments, and we, we know now from what we can put together by the history of, uh, of um, when you look at anthropology, for example, we know that musical instruments uh, started very early and started very close to our body. In fact, started with the human voice. So, Renée carries her instrument, we all do, we, we can all sing, 
We don't sing like her, but we can all sing. Uh, and that is the very first instrument. And it is not very difficult for you to imagine, even before there were caves, the caves that are now being explored, uh, say, 40 to 50,000 years ago, uh, it's very easy to imagine that people, even before there was any kind of building structure beyond huts, were producing sounds that were musical, and we're using those sounds for a variety of purposes that we will talk about in a minute. There's another kind of instrument that we carry in our own body, and that happens to be our chest, which allows you to drum. So, if the very first instrument was the human voice, it's quite likely that the second, or at the same time, was in fact the chest, because it allows you to drum. And then there were drums built from different surfaces. And René showed you a flute, uh, and again, now it's, uh, there have been several finds, they're bone flutes, but this is a, a sign that music was already pretty complicated because when you have a flute with five holes, you're not kidding, you know, there is already a musical notion and a musical composition uh, going on there. Uh, and then, uh, of course, all along for the other instruments. So what does it do? What do you do with all these instruments? Well, um, I like to think that probably the, the very first effects that humans found, and just imagine what it would be like to be humans, say, 60,000 years ago, in producing sounds uh, that were used for communication, because I, I have great faith in the idea that music actually precedes a verbal language, and discovering certain things, discovering that there was a certain timbre, discovering that that timbre or the quality of the sound it was produced, or the combination of sounds, um, produced certain things like, for example, consolation and comfort of another that was in suffering. And I doubt very much that this is actually not the very beginning. I think it is the very beginning. The, the, there's another one that comes very close, which has to do with seduction. You can imagine people seducing other people with their voices, uh, which is something that, for example, someone like Mozart explores beautifully. You heard a very good aria earlier today that, that points in that direction. So producing emotions such as compassion and caring, or producing excitement uh, and attraction were things that were exploited by the human voice, and it has never stopped. That's exactly what, in fact, opera uh, exploits that through and through, and it's a very good thing that it was invented. You know, opera really comes from the, from the, the, the 1500s, when people in Venice and Florence had this amazing discovery that they could have drama, they could have tragedies, for example, uh, as they were all the way from the Greeks, and they could combine it with music and, in fact, do what the Greeks most likely did, which was to have their plays with a very interesting dramatic text combined with music, which of course has been lost because we don't have the, we don't have the scores. And then out of these discoveries came social cohesion, something that could be brought together both in the good sense and in the bad sense, because the same way that you can, with beautiful music, create a sense of social cohesion and of community, which obviously was at work in early villages, in tribes, and so forth, you can also send people to war. 
And the, the, the marches that are musical as well are ways of creating the community, but it's creating the community to go on the offensive and to destroy others, which is something extremely important it's for us to think that emotions are both of the good kind and the bad kind, and the, the good emotions are nurturing, but they're also emotions that can be disruptive and destructive, which have to do with anger and hate, and which normally end up in some kind of violence. And, of course, there are also the aspects that have to do with elevation uh, that music can conjure up so well. Now, because music has all of this importance, and because, as I mentioned earlier, we have great faith in education, we have had an interest for several years in doing studies that could prove scientifically, with proper data, that teaching music to children will have a positive effect in their lives, in their behavior, and in their brains. And so, for several years, we had been mulling over how to do this. And then, with uh, over a number of years in conversations with Deborah Borda, who was uh, the, the uh, director of the uh, uh, LA Philharmonic, we had the possibility of creating a program jointly with the LA Phil and with the Youth Orchestra of Los Angeles where we could have students, in this case children ages five and six at the beginning of the, of the study, who could be uh, studied formally with all the scientific methods so that in fact we could say that music has or does not have an effect on music, on, on, on brain development and on behavior. Why did we really want to do this? Something that you obviously are quite aware. All of you must be music lovers, otherwise you would not be here. Uh, and you're quite aware that music education has decreased and that there are no funds for music education. Most schools don't have it. And very often what people will say in justifying the cuts in the funds is to say, well, we don't really know that it works. Maybe it's just you know, a pastime and it doesn't really work. Uh, the, the good news is that we now know it works, but I'm going to the, ask Asala Bibi, Dr. Asala Bibi, who is a professor here and who has been in our group for several years, and she, together with Hannah, uh, organized this study, which is really an Herculean study because it has many, many subjects, and they're not only the subjects that do the music studies uh, the, and are subject to a music intervention, but also the ones that are controls. So, Asal, if you can come up and tell this wonderful audience what you have done. Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Damasio, and thank you, Rene, for that beautiful presentation. Really inspiring. I'm really excited to be here to share with you um, some of the work we've been doing at the Brain and Creativity Institute on music training and child development. So you may have heard that music training is good for children. You may have heard anecdotal stories or reading research articles that music has benefits in a variety of domains. Some of these are cognitive domains such as reading skills, mathematical skills, ability to pay attention, but also we have had uh, evidence of music training being uh, good and beneficial for social skills such as having more empathy towards others, having more compassion. The past two decades or so of science has provided a lot of evidence in this area, but we just, what we didn't know is 
where does this come from? Is people who are more, are people who are more intelligent or better in math or memory skills prone to learn music and play musical instrument? So is it a biological factor or is it really the result of music training that we see these benefits in child development? Or possibly the combination of the, these two factors? And the only way really to answer this question um, is to test children prior to learning the skill and then follow them consecutively every year and see what happens as, as they go through their training and learn music. And as Dr. Damasio mentioned, this is exactly what we have done. About five years ago, we started a collaboration at the Brain and Creativity Institute with the Los Angeles Philharmonic and their youth orchestra program, YOLO at OLA. And the goal of this study was to uh, investigate the effects of systematic group-based music training in children when they were just six to seven years old, and then follow them for five years to see what happens to their brain and cognitive development, and also their social and emotional skills as they learn music. So telling you a little bit about the children in the study, we have a group of children who five years ago started playing with the YOLA program. If for those of you who don't know, this is a community-based ba community free music training program that is offered by the LA Phil to low-income communities of Los Angeles. Um, we have 25 children in this group, but we also wanted to account for two factors. One is all children get better throughout the five years. All of them get better with their math skills, their reading skills, so we needed a control group. We also wanted to take account for the fact that they're being exposed to an activity that is fun and engaging. So what we would see maybe is not related to music, but just being part of a group and being encouraged. So we have two control groups. First one is a group of children who have just signed up to be part of a soccer, community soccer program. And the third one is a group of children who were not going to do music or sports systematically after school. Overall, we have 75 children. We tested all of them prior to their engagement in the research project. And we matched the group in terms of their cognitive skills, their social skills, their IQ, their socioeconomic status. And since then, we have been seeing them. Every child comes to the Brain and Creativity Institute with their parents once a year. And we've been testing them in a variety of measures using different probes. Some of these are behavioral measures that allows us to look at development of language, learning, and memory. We also use electroencephalography, which is are these electrodes that we put on the head, and that shows us the electrical activity of the brain while a child is engaged in an activity or a task. And we also use the magnetic resonance imaging, similar to the one that Renee explained, and that allows us to look at the structure of the brain, the connection between the structures of the brain, and the function of the brain. So as you can imagine, this is a very large study with a lot of results. Um, as we expected, after one or two years of music training, we began to see differences in musical skills in children who have had music. So the first thing that we saw changing was perception of tone, rhythm, singing abilities. But we wanted to take this a step forward and look uh, further and um, look at skills and abilities that are not only necessary for music, but are important for everyday life. So executive function skills that we all use in our life. And two of, skill, two of the skills that I'm gonna highlight tonight, uh, one is working memory, so the ability to keep some information in your mind so you can plan for something else, and impulse control, to inhibit yourself from doing something immediately in favor for something better in the future. So this could be an immediate um, reward, just stopping yourself from eating a cookie for a, in favor of a better lunch, or going to class in favor of graduating at the end of the semester. 
And then we also wanted to look at the brain correlates of these changes. So let's start with working memory. We tested working memory using two different types of stimuli. The first one was a musical stimuli, and we did that as children had these EEG caps on them, and we looked at the brain activity associated with that. We presented them with pairs of melodies. Sometimes the two pairs were identical. And sometimes the second part of the pair was not similar to the first part. And the task was just tell us whether you think these two melodies were the same or different. What we have observed is that when the two melodies were the same, children from the three groups performed equally well. However, when there was a difference in the second melody, only children who have had training were able to detect that deviation. And not only behaviorally they performed better, we also saw a brain signature of that. These are EEG activity. You're looking from the, at the head from the top, like this is the nose. And as early as two years of training, we observed this uh, signature brain activation that we refer to as P300. Its appearance correlates with the activation of the cingulate cortex. And we saw that as early as two years, and after three years of training, it actually became stronger. We didn't see such an activity in the control groups. So let's say they're getting better with working memory with a musical stimuli because they're practicing music. What about something that is not musical? We presented children with a list of words. So we read the words, and then we ask them immediately, just tell us as many words as you can remember from the first list. Then we present them with a second list. The second list is completely different from the first list, but the test is again, tell us as many words as you can remember from the first list. And this is basically testing your ability to encode these words from the first list and not let the second uh, list interfere with your memory. Again, when the task was easy, meaning just to repeat the first list, everybody seemed to be doing okay. However, when there was an interference list, we saw that children who have had music training were significantly less affected by this interference list, meaning that they were able to encode the information and keep that in their uh, memory much uh, more successfully than the control groups. So let's move on to delayed gratification. Again, this is an ability to stopping yourself from doing something. And we test that with candies, M&Ms, and quarters. So we give children three scenarios. You can have an M&M now or two later, similar with quarters. Medium reward, you can have one now or four later. And large reward is you can have one now or six later. What we have observed, first with the control group, it didn't matter how large the reward was. Small, medium, or large, the children in the control group who didn't have any type of training didn't seem to differentiate for their waiting time. They waited equally. The music group, however, as the reward got larger, medium and large, they tended to, to wait more, meaning that once they figured that this reward is more attractive, they were able to inhibit their impulse of wanting that M&M now and wait for the next day to get the M&Ms. If you're curious to know how the sports group did, they didn't do as well as the music group, but they still did better than the children who have had no training. Another task that we use uh, for inhibition, we do this inside the MRI scanner, and we present children with a word, and the task is, you can try it yourself, name the color of the word. Sometimes a word matches the color, so blue, red, green. 
and sometimes it doesn't. You have to stop yourself from reading the word and just say the color of the word. And what we look at is the activity that goes with this inhibition. What does it take to stop? What does it happen in the brain to stop yourself from doing that? And what we've observed is that in children who have had music training, in the areas that are frontal regions of the brain, areas that are important for decision-making and planning, we've seen stronger activation during this specific task compared to children who didn't have training. And finally, looking at brain itself, one of the things that we're interested in is not only the structure and regions of the brain, but how they are connected with each other. There are these white matter bundles that, like highways, connect different regions of the brain that facilitates communication between the brains. We're looking at the brain from the top here, and one of these um, pathways of connections is the corpus callosum, meaning and it actually connects the left and the right side of the brain to each other. When we looked at the corpus callosum and its structure, before the training, there was no differences between the three groups. However, after just two years of training, we observed that children who have had music training had more robust connectivity in the frontal portion of the corpus callosum, also in the sensory and motor regions. That means that they had more connectivity and probably integration of the both hemispheres just as a result of music training. So, as I said, this is a very large study. We are finishing up our last cycle of data collection. We're very encouraged that not only we've seen uh, benefits in terms of musical skills, but really skills that are very important for everyday life and for future decision-making and healthy child development. And we're currently looking at um, health and wellness, self-esteem and belongingness to community. And really, as, as Dr. Damasio mentioned, one of the big goals of this study was to provide scientific evidence for how important it is to have music within our uh, public school education system. And with that, I would like to acknowledge everybody who's been involved in this study, the families and participants, and also our partners, the LA Philharmonic and their youth program. Thank you. Thank you very much, and I think that this is um, for you to have a, the idea that uh, not only do we have the immediate effects uh, of music in an adult population or in a population of patients with different conditions, but we also can have this huge impact in education, uh, and it's not terribly difficult to do. Uh, it's just something that... that uh, uh, I think needs to, the, the word needs to get around so that people that are responsible for uh, practices of education know about this and can, can take advantage of it. And it's not, we know, we're not trying to create um, uh, expert musicians, uh, we're simply trying to give force to the idea that music has a huge effect that can have consequences that are outside of the music. And in this case, not just at the level of feeling, like we discussed before, but also at the intellectual level, because the, the, these people are getting skills. And we have no idea, for example, what will happen when you get to age 15 or 20 in these children. They may have advantages that came by way of music and have not manifested themselves yet. And certainly the effects on impulse control are absolutely uh, superb. So I think that on our part, uh, this is the idea we wanted to show you these studies because
they are in fact unique. They have been tried, but nobody has the stamina which they had in our group to go on for several years in going through the enormous effort of having different groups and dealing with different families and different subjects. Uh, it's, uh, it's much more complicated than dealing with adults, as you can probably imagine. So this is, they, they, they deserve quite a lot of accolades for this. One more round of applause. Renee, you suggested a piece of music that you thought was particularly illustrative of some of the ideas um, that Dr. Damasio was talking about. Um, can we welcome back uh, Nino Sanakidze and mezzo-soprano Taylor Raven to the stage? Renee, do you want to say something about the piece?
I didn't. Uh, I know what you're. I know what you're after now. So it's this universality of certain pieces. Uh, in my career, it's been it's been definitely that uh, Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, uh, Ave Maria, and O Mio Babino Caro. And so there's something about melody, um, and there's something about the simplicity of a melody that is. It, it strikes me as something universal. M many folk. Um, songs have this. Many folk songs are also about longing and about um, uh, this and homesickness too is a, is a really common goal. So I always, I think someday somebody will be able to analyze what the elements are in the most powerful music. What is it about modulation? What is it about certain harmonies that move us? And certainly um, the melodic piece as well and the rhythmic piece. So we're unfortunately running uh, quite short of time. So I actually want to skip to our um, third musical interlude, which is in a very different vein um, than the one we just heard. So please uh, join me in welcoming uh, tenor Brian Michael Moore uh, to the stage with uh, pianist Nino Sanakidze. Try. Oh, God. 
So that's the last number uh, from Leonard Bernstein's Candide. Uh, of course, it, it ends with the famous line, any questions? And so I want to take uh, the last uh, 10 minutes of our gathering here to see if we have any questions from the audience. Uh, there should be uh, microphones, uh, two down here on the orchestra level and one on the balcony. And if you could just uh, state your name and, and the question, um, we'll try to get in as many as we can in the next uh, 10 minutes. Thank you. Yes, sir. Uh, has there been any studies um, on the incidence of, you know, a lot of uh, rock stars, musicians, have uh, the intersection of mental illness, drug abuse, and, you know, a lot of uh, our famous musicians have died as young as in their 20s, and obviously recently we've, you know, Tom Petty and and uh, Prince and other stars. What is it from a, uh, anybody have any answers as to what the risks are with respect to this? And is there any cause, any studies of the brain with relation to that? Go ahead. <laughs> so the, well, the, the question is about the the vulnerability and potential risk for a variety of uh, mental illness in musicians. Uh, he mentioned performers, but I think he probably means even broader than that. So th there is a, a, an answer to be given here, and it's the following. We talked about emotions and feelings as uh, the, the end of the language of music and the way in which music gets their meanings. This is not, of course, it's very pronounced in music, but it's present in many other arts. And I think that what is at work here is a vulnerability of artists in general to a variety of conditions such as depression and mania and a huge vulnerability because of that to um, intoxication with a variety of drugs. So I think it's not so much music, and I don't think that there is any evidence, strong evidence that musicians in general will be more prone to mental illness. Uh, it's an awfully difficult thing to establish when you think about, about all the variety of musicians. Does she look like she has any vulnerability at all? <laughs> I don't think so. Um, so I think that uh, what happens is that artists are, by their very nature, by the fact that they're artists, are people that are sensitive, are people that listen very much to their emotions and feelings, and, uh, and, and trade in emotions and feelings, and very often have to use their emotions and feelings in their uh, activity. I, uh, can, I, can I also say, I just spent two days with Mickey Hart, of the Grateful Dead, and learned a lot about their history. I mean, more than I, you know, didn't know. And I would also add to that the pressures of touring, and the extraordinary exactly. experience of having this love from the audience, and then going home alone to your hotel room. And I do experience that. So when Lady Gaga now cancels a tour because she's in pain, I totally understand that. So uh, there are uh, lifestyle issues at work as well, besides yeah. this artistry and, this, and the pressure to perform at a high level. Right. 
And, and I think it's, it's, uh, th there are situations, social situations, especially when you're dealing with people that are, say, in the, in, in, in the, the rock world, uh, in the pop world. There are pressures in the lifestyle that make it much more likely that under difficulties, uh, in a situation of depression or of acute um, loss, that they will turn to drugs because they are available. So it's, it's really a combination of, of, um, of, of, of situations that we're dealing with here. Matthew. Hello, everyone. Thank you for a stimulating evening. Um, I have a question for Dr. Damasio. Um, I, I have a sense that uh, science and the arts are perhaps out of sync in the sense that the sciences tend to study earlier uh, manifestations of art. I think of, you know, Proust was a neuroscientist, that's cutting edge science perhaps, but Proust lived a century ago and the scientists of his day weren't saying the same thing. In, in the same way, uh, the pieces of music which have been used as sort of illustrative examples have been largely traditional or familiar, though great. And I wonder if you could speak to how we might open up a dialogue between so to speak, cutting-edge science and cutting-edge music. Is there a way for living composers to, to communicate with scientists about advances in the field of music, or are the challenges of vocabulary too great? Well, I think the challenges are there, but there's no reason why they, they should not or could not be transposed. Um, and I think you're quite right. Um, and I think that the, the, there's something that we point out. You mentioned Proust. Um, and it's a very good example of where the scientific exploration and the artistic exploration actually fuse. Um, and you know, another example could be, for example, Shakespeare. Most of the situations that we study today in cognitive neuroscience or in cognition in general are situations that were beautifully treated with enormous psychological depth by a person like Shakespeare. In fact, practically all the dramatic situations that you can imagine, all the different emotive uh, uh, situations, the, 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 the social context were all perfectly explored by this man. And when you look at Proust, the, Proust ended up saying about uh, the, the acquisition of memories, and especially about the remembrance of memories, enormously deep uh, uh, um, making enormously deep considerations that, in fact, scientists in the 20th century turn to, and very often we only add aspects that have to do with the mechanism or with the, the connection to uh, a particular brain uh, uh, component, but you don't really add much in terms of the fundamental description of the phenomenon, because it is that rich uh, and, and it's so full of the necessary detail. Uh, we are trying actually with a number of composers, younger composers, to try to do something along the lines of what you, what you suggest. And it really boils down to the availability of the right partners and the availability of time. People have to dedicate a lot of time in order to be able to establish a dialogue because you can only have a fruitful dialogue if people trust each other and if you can talk and you can make a lot of mistakes and say a lot of foolish things before you end up saying smart things. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.
Yes, uh, my question is related to concussions and, and music in your studies. If you studied concussions, uh, if you would like to, or if you know people locally who are, and the question is because uh, in the past four years I've had two concussions and outward appearances I may look fine, but it's been a very Kafka-esque journey, uh, hitting more walls in Western medicine than imaginable, almost worse than the brain injuries I've experienced and the consequences. So I'm very curious if you can refer me to any studies you're doing or others where I might interact and, and, and grow and, who knows, help studies themselves. I actually had a, a part of my presentation that I cut um, on this specific thing, concussions, uh, because Dr. Nina Krauss at Northwestern in Chicago uh, published a paper this past year um, with a, a, that it found that a hearing test could actually, because she's, she's dealing mostly with processing sound, can actually test for early stage concussion. So I would definitely go to that website and Dr. And, and Antonio, you probably know of other ways. Yeah, and, and actually that would be a good person. She studies a lot of things that have to do, uh, auditory processing that has to do with the brain stem uh, that other parts of the brain that I re um, called your attention to that is not in the pictures. And uh, so it might be a good person. Nina Krauss. It is no Northwestern, right? I think Northwestern, Northwestern, right. Yeah. Yes, sir. Hi, I'm Adam, and I heard a lot about you, Renee, growing up. My mother went to Potsdam, and my violin teacher, too. And your name would come up pretty frequently. And this is a school in uh, northern New York State, State University. I'm, I'm from Binghamton, actually. Oh. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm looking forward to tomorrow uh, hearing you, and I wondered if you thought, having worked with the individual there who had been in the snowboarding accident, uh, as we had heard earlier about people, when they you know, were going to war, they would march to the beat of the drum, and in my experience hearing people from the deaf community being able to play guitar to the beat that they felt, I wondered if you might have any kind of idea on if music actually would create a structure that people can create a framework that they can hang their creativity off of, uh, including children that are learning and going off of that structure, being able to plan ahead for, you know, when you're, when you're playing music, the key might change. You have to plan ahead for that. An accidental might come up. You have to plan for that. If that all might lead into more productivity for them. Well, Adam Ghazali at UCFF is developing games, so actual video games for both for the aged, for cognitive uh, health in, in, as we age, but also for kids with ADHD. And so there's, I think, a lot of technique in there. Um, but we also use rhythm to treat, well, this is what you do, but to treat Parkinson's and to treat um, several other uh, issues that have specifically to do with keeping that beat. Um, can you answer more specifically? Yeah, well, I think, let me jump over the, the intent of your question, which is to say, all of these things are possible if people have a structure, but very often it's the structure, the, the academic, because that's where you have most of laboratories, but not necessarily. If you have the people uh, that have the interests, and if you have a defined research program, and if you have the money, you cannot do any of this. You know, most of the time we end up uh, struggling with enormous difficulties because we, don't, we hardly have money for what we need to do. And, uh, and it doesn't get any better if you have cuts 
in research funds at the level of, uh, you know, federal level, or level, level of the states. Uh, and so that actually is the greatest barrier. The greatest barrier that we face is funding for a lot of things that when we are having a meeting, we say, could we do this? Could we do that? And in fact, we could, but it takes people. You know, the, the, the ideas and the goodwill are here. The, what, what is missing is the possibility of creating that glue around, you know, creating a focus, giving it a structure, but you need, of course, support. Without that, you cannot do it. I'm afraid we have time for only one more question, so I will go to you. Hi, my name is Nicholas Chapman, and I'm a current student here at USC, and my, my question is more directed towards Dr. Damasio, um, and it's about where are you seeing BCI go forward, meaning um, the research that you showed about children was very interesting, very, very fundamental, um, but we know and we understand that the, the plasticity of children's brains are a lot more plastic, just to use that term loosely, um, than adult brains. Um, I remember one research from 2015 that you stated something about um, MDD and how can we apply this being, how can we apply these treatments or what is the research being done by BCI for adults? Um, knowing that a lot of these kids are still developing their prefrontal cortex as they're visualizing the world and you have these people with MDD that have already this idea of who they are, their self within this environment, they have that qualia. So I wanna know where is BCI going to help the adults solve this problem? So the answer to your question, BCI does many other things besides music studies. The, the, the music studies are very important to us for the reasons that I stated and because they are so valuable in terms of education, which is one core function. Most of the studies that we are doing now have to do with the physiology of feeling, what really goes on in the body, in the brain, when you feel in a certain way, how that relates to consciousness. And we have a number of studies that have to do with another aspect of the arts, as it so happens, which is narrative structuring. How is it that we we, we are able in our brains to tell a story, which we do with language or without language, verbally or non-verbally, and which is absolutely essential to understand how our minds work. Because, you know, at heart, our brains not only are machines of feeling and emotion, that are conscious, but they're also storytellers. We're constantly telling stories to ourselves, which is, by the way, one of the ways in which we build memories. So. What is going to happen, the, something that we know we are doing, something that Rene mentioned, is the possibility of understanding what is it in the structure of music that is responsible for certain emotions. What are the things that have to do, for example, with, say, a timbre, uh, or the, 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 the composition itself? Uh, in other words, quote unquote, what are the notes that are involved here? And how is it that there's some of these combinations of, uh, of um, compositional elements that will produce reliably certain kinds of emotions and the consequent feelings? That's a very important theme to us and that's one that we want to do. Again, going back to the previous uh, answer, if we had the money, we would do what you want. <laughs> Thank you.
this is such a... Uh, so, okay, one, one more, sorry. Hi, Chris, and hi, it's Yael. Hi, uh, I'm wondering whether or not there are new technologies that you're looking at, for example, AR and VR, to uh, partner with your studies. Well, there are always new technologies coming up, and there are always something that is just as important, is ways of manipulating the data that are more um, interesting, and that can give you more results. Uh, you know, the, 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 we are at a, at a good level in terms of imaging, but we're not where we want to be, and there will be new developments there. Electrophysiology is developing still, although it's actually the oldest of all these techniques, uh, and there are combinations of these technologies that are going to yield a lot of interesting results, like, for example, studies that involve multiple um, uh, subjects. So instead of studying just what one subject is doing, like we have there, the images of the brain as the person listened to that particular nocturne of Chopin, having multiple individuals that are listening to the same thing uh, or practicing a certain set of movements and see how they, the, how they correlate and how they also interact. Because when you are at a music performance, again, think of, you know, we, actually it's nice because we are in a theater, this is happening in a, in a communal uh, situation, but when you are listening to a live performance, uh, there are many things that are happening to the performer, of course, but there are things that are happening to those of us in the audience and their interactions among the people. When, when, you, when, when you hear a particularly sublime musical execution, it's not only you that are getting that, it's the people around you, and you are picking up signals from the people around you that are, for example, emotively involved in that moment. So these things are way beyond a single individual, and once again, we are in that community. And by the way, this happens not only with music, but it happens also with cinema, because movies are, from the get-go, an audiovisual art. You tend to think about movies as visual, but movies from, from the, the time of the, 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 the pre-sound uh, movies already had sound because they, they had people singing or playing a piano in the, in, in the theater. So th there's also that combination that is very profound. It's, it's important not to forget that, by and large, the, the great art of the 20th century, which was cinema, was in fact built together with music because it's part of it. That's why movie composers are so well paid. <laughs> uh, thank you. This is such a rich and rewarding subject, and obviously uh, tonight we've only begun to scratch the surface, and so I'm incredibly grateful uh, to all of you for coming. I'm incredibly grateful to Dr. Damasio and Renee Fleming for their work in this field, and I hope this has stimulated you um, to research this uh, further and hopefully to have a, a greater daily dose of music in your lives. Uh, thank you so much for coming. Thank you.